Ah, uh, to think I knew him when. I first met Elon Levy 10 years ago, shortly after I arrived in Israel, in January 2014. I had just been appointed the Canadian ambassador to Israel by former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Elon was a young TV reporter and a standout from the beginning. Over the years, we've maintained contact and I've watched him mature into the extraordinary media spokesperson that has made him a household name and me globally. He is whip smart, speaks with a very posh accent, is articulate and crisp in his speech in a way that only Brits can be, and has distinguished himself in what may be the toughest media job in the world these days as spokesperson for the office of the Prime Minister of Israel. I watch Elon and I'm impressed, not only by how he keeps his cool when being very aggressively challenged by media who are often ignorant of basic historical facts and current realities, but are also impossibly contemptuous and belligerent. And yet, Elon Levy handles them all with an aplomb that has become legendary. A few weeks ago, when I was leading a group of senior Canadian journalists on a short trip to Israel to expose them to the reality on the ground, which is starkly different from what is shown generally in the media, we were fortunate to have Elon come and speak with us about his experiences in the hot seat. There was lots of engaging shop talk, but on a lighter note, he mused about the quite nice life he had been enjoying prior to October 7th often spending hours in flip-flops in a Tel Aviv cafe working on whatever book he was translating at the time. Fun fact, yes, Elon's Hebrew is as superb as is his English, and he is one of the most sought-after translators by academics and others. I asked him that evening if there had ever been another Israeli media spokesperson who had the dual-language skill that he did. And he paused, just long enough for maximum dramatic impact, and looked straight at me and said, Benjamin Netanyahu. I'm Vivian Berkovich, former Canadian ambassador to Israel, and now living in the awesome state of Tel Aviv. Stay with us. Elon Levy, good morning, and thank you so much for making time to speak to State of Tel Aviv today. Your Excellency, what a pleasure. Well, we're off to a very good start. How are you today? It's been one heck of a week, and I wanted to start with the events of last week, which were even for these last five months, which have been one day of shock and awe after another. And you're the guy who's supposed to stay on top of it, but I'll make sense of it all, and I doff my chapeau to you on that. But last week, I know it was a busy one for you, super busy, because I had to reschedule my interview with you because there was a tsunami of requests for the great Elon Levy. But here we are. Just to recap for our listeners, we woke up, was it Sunday or Monday? I can't even remember anymore. To the extraordinary news. It was one of those days last week. Extraordinary rescue of our hostages, two hostages from Rafa, like Entebbe-style rescue on steroids. And just to give you a sense of how extraordinary that moment was, the rescue operation was carried out by Unit 669, the Elite Search and Rescue Unit. Now, I'd actually been at a wedding just two weeks earlier 
where the groom was a reservist in 669. And many of his teammates had managed to get out of military service just to go to the wedding. And they wow. were all there and we're drinking at the bar. And after the rescue mission, I asked him, were you involved in the rescue mission? He said, no, but the guys you met at the wedding were. Wow. And it was extraordinary collision of worlds where one day you're raising chasers with, with people at a bar at a wedding. And the next day they're swooping in through a window to rescue hostages in the middle of Rafa. And that really speaks to the absurdity of the Israeli reality, how people flit between these different scenarios and they fight and they go back to the things they know they're fighting for. You clearly move in much more glam circles than I do, Elon. Next time, give me a call. I'll just slip in through the back door. That is amazing how, and it does show how concentrated and intense life here is. And especially after the tough few months Israel has had, and in particular, I'm thinking about the three hostages who were inadvertently killed by the IDF. The morale here has been challenged. People have been struggling. And that certainly gave us something to feel optimistic about and good, just good, right? The other thing last week, though, I just want to finish up with the kind of context, and then it's over to you, dude. The other thing last week that I thought was extraordinary was the exposure of the UNRWA headquarters sitting atop Hamas server palace, I call it, not server farm, a huge operation with cables going up into the floor of UNRWA and Philippe Lazzarini, the head of UNRWA, standing up before the world and saying, I had no idea, which nobody believed. Let's start with UNRWA, because what I'm interested in hearing is, what's it like you handle all of this hostility day after day? Did you notice a change in the questioning with UNRWA, change in the tone when that incident was exposed? Unfortunately not. UNRWA is a Hamas front, but UNRWA enjoys the legitimacy of having a UN stamp on it. It is the mechanism through which Hamas launders its information for global consumption and its talking points because Hamas will make any outrageous claim. UNRWA will amplify it. The next thing you know, it's being presented as evidence at the International Court of Justice and some other repulsive UN official engaged in Holocaust inversion will then uh, make all sorts of trumped up accusations against Israel based on a decision that was made in accordance with the information laundered by a UN agency. It's all one big, dirty ecosystem. Unfortunately, UN agencies still have the aura of legitimacy that I don't think they deserve. It is exhausting as a government spokesman to wake up every day and essentially declare war on the whole world as we see how much of the UN mechanism has mobilized to save Hamas's skin in the wake of the October 7 massacre. If it's the World Health Organization that continues to accuse Israel of targeting hospitals while covering up Hamas's militarization of hospitals, or the Red Cross, which didn't seem particularly exercised by the use of ambulances in the October 7 massacre at the Erez crossing, as we revealed last week, to the whole other panoply of UN agencies that I've simply mobilized to take the Palestinian side in this war. I'll give you an example of one of the things I'm dealing with. The constant accusations that Israel isn't letting aid into the Gaza Strip. It's a complete lie. There's excess capacity at Israel's crossings to more than double the amount of aid going in. There's so much going in that on Thursday we released images of the crates of 500 trucks full of aid on the Gazan side of Karim Shalom, 
that had been sitting there for three days straight waiting for the UN to come pick it up and distribute it. And because these UN agencies have been covering up for Hamas, and because they are simply incompetent, they then blame Israel because scapegoating Israel is always the easiest thing to do in order to deflect flame. And people buy it because they are much more inclined to believe agencies that have UN in the title than a spokesman who has Israel in his title. And so it's not even an even playing field. No, it's not even playing field. But how on earth, especially in the light of I saw those photos at Karim Shalom, we have other audiovisual that was released, film clips that we have released over the last week showing Hamas workers, Hamas terrorists uh, with UNRWA workers, oh, yeah. the one of taking a dead body. How can anyone look at that and still laud the UN? How do you, see, you deal with it every day? It's an excellent question. It's a really excellent question. One of the things that I've been trying to do in this war, thinking a step ahead, yeah. is to try to explain to Western audiences that look up to the UN with reverence and admiration and think that it represents the lofty, noble values that were enshrined back in 1945, to tell them how poorly they are being served by organizations that are running interference for Hamas. And I know that when I started raising the alarm earlier in the war, it sounded extreme and I got a little bit of a slap on the wrist, but that is what they are doing now. They are running interference for Hamas. They have mobilize their entire social media campaigns, all the mm. state that they make in order to try to intervene and ensure that this war ends with Hamas still on its feet. Just a few days ago, Martin Griffiths, the UN relief chief, went on Sky News and said that Hamas is not a terror organization. It was appalling. I was just waiting to go on air. I cut that clip, put it on Twitter, Within seconds, the Israeli foreign ministry retweeted it. The at Israel account latched onto it. Our ambassadors around the world also amplified the UN refugee relief chief saying that Hamas is not a terror organization. It makes media reports. Next thing I know, Martin Griffiths is forced to issue a clarification saying, what I meant is that it's not on the UN's list of terror organizations, but that doesn't detract from the awful crimes it committed on October 7th. The German foreign ministry then throws serious shade at him by tweeting back, it is according to the EU list of terror organizations. And John Kirby gets asked about it in a press conference at the White House. That is how you start to hold these officials accountable for the awful damage that they have been doing and they have been sowing in taking Hamas's side. And in that same interview, Mr. Griffiths was asked, what keeps you awake? at night. What's your top priority? And he said, what keeps me awake at night is the thought of an incursion into Rafa. And I was shocked because what keeps us awake at night is the fate of the hostages who are being starved and tortured and executed and raped in the Hamas terror dungeons right now. That keeps us awake at night. And if the hostages were released and Hamas laid down its arms, then there would be no more war and there would be no reason for an incursion into Rafa. So the fact that he is exploiting his power to try to say, I hope that the Israelis don't go in to try to rescue the hostages instead of saying that what keeps them up is the fact that the hostages were abducted in the first place is really horrific and shocking. And we're trying to push back on it. And I'm happy to have a conversation as well about how uh, other countries as well around the world have been engaging with that and, and how we see that diplomatic support. I would love to. But first, I want to just say, you know, your work is so excellent. And thank you for doing that. It's amazing to hear what a difference, and I'm sure there are times in the day when you're like, wow, 
I just put out that tweet and it turned into that. Good for you because we all have a voice. By the way, uh, yeah. it's, it's something anyone can do. The monitoring media latching onto repulsive statements by officials who have been running interference for Hamas, putting them out there in the public sphere and generating a conversation is not something you need the title government spokesman in order to Absolutely. do it. Could have been any watch that interview, cut it. And I would encourage people as well to monitor closely what these people are saying and draw attention to the highly poisonous role that they have been playing in this conflict. I do my best, Elon, but we're not all as fabulous at it as you are. So thank you for your effort. But you're right. We have a voice and it is our responsibility, every single one of us, to use it. Are you concerned with what is going on in Israel? This is not just another crisis. State of Tel Aviv is committed to delivering superb and candid analysis, and we're offering a limited-time subscription special, a 33% discount from the regular fee of $90 annually, one year for only $60. Stay informed and stay connected with State of Tel Aviv. We are a reader-supported enterprise. If you value our work, please subscribe. It makes a huge difference. Stateoftelaviv.com. All one word. Now, back to the podcast. Tell me, you were just teasing me with some changes you've noticed in the way the diplomatic world or certain diplomats, certain countries have been responding to these challenges. We feel let down because we think that our Western allies know and still want Israel to win this war. They understand that the response to the October 7 massacre cannot be a stalemate or a draw. It has to be the destruction of Hamas. Right. The problem is none of them are willing to say that out loud. And you have to tease it between the lines. I saw a statement from the prime ministers of Australia, Canada, and New Zealand this week calling for a permanent ceasefire. And they say a ceasefire cannot be unilateral. Hamas must release the hostages and it must lay down its arms. To which I say, if you, can, if you have a magic wand to wave to make that happen, brilliant, because that's exactly what we want, a ceasefire, once the enemy has put down its arms and given back the hostages. How do we get that? Means you want a total Israeli victory. You are saying there should be no permanent ceasefire until we have the hostages back and Hamas is forced to lay down its arms. So why can you not come out and say, we want Israel to win this war, bring back the hostages and force Hamas to lay down its arms and couch it instead of terms of a ceasefire that makes it appear like Israel is the belligerent party when you are signed up for its war goals and its war aims because you understand that there cannot be a ceasefire that leaves the hostages in Gaza or Hamas in power. So we need our allies, but still see on a level of strategy, but understand the need for this war to end with the hostages home and Hamas out of power, not to offer us magic bullet solutions that don't exist, but to stand by Israel's side as we fight to achieve those goals and as we fight what is, at the end of the day, a just and legitimate war that has been forced on us by the horrific atrocities of October 7th. Couldn't agree more. And clearly you missed the uh, column that I wrote on just that statement uh, in the National Post uh, newspaper in Canada, but I'll send it to you. You can read it in your spare time. I have to interject here with some context that there was not enough time to discuss with Elon. But his comments about the failure of Israel's allies 
to come straight out with it and say, we support Israel in this war, and we agree with the outcomes it has articulated since October 7th. Well, that presumes that the leaders of Canada, Australia, and New Zealand actually take that position. As a Canadian, I'll focus my critique on Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his government. He and his cabinet have consistently spoken out of both sides of their mouths. I would not trust his good faith when it comes to Israel at all. Canada has become one of the most violently anti-Semitic countries in the West, and that is because of the very large and new Muslim demographic relative to Canada's overall population that has immigrated to Canada in recent years. And the fact that many members of Parliament in the Trudeau government are virulently anti-Israel and anti-Semitic, and they make no attempt to hide that. Justin Trudeau has consistently taken the position regarding the massive and violent demonstrations across Canada supporting Hamas that they were and are peaceful protests and protected by law. That could not be further from the truth. The protesters chant for the annihilation of Israel, killing of Jews, consistently. They target Jewish neighborhoods and Jewish-owned businesses with threatening conduct, vandalism, and violence. There is nothing peaceful about these protests, nor are they protected by Canadian law. The Prime Minister knowingly misrepresents rather important matters. And then there are the repeat attacks and threats on Jewish schools, synagogues, and other institutions. He always takes his time in reacting to those outrageous attacks. So, where Elon Levy sees allyship, I'm not so sure I agree. Then again, in fairness, he has to mind his P's and Q's in a way that I no longer do. Elon Levy speaks for the government of Israel, for the Prime Minister's office, no less. I just speak for myself. Now back to the podcast. Western liberal democratic countries, part of the club that we see ourselves being part of, right. are our allies. We need them to have the courage to be true to their convictions and not allow themselves to be intimidated for whatever reason out of saying what they know to be their own strategic necessity. And, and part of the horrors of the anti-Semitic hate parades that we've seen through the streets of the West is that these countries for too long have tolerated a vile political undercurrent that is now making it difficult for them to pursue their own national security goals because they create the uh, domestic pressure that is stopping them from clearly saying what they knew to be true on October 7th, which is that Israel must win this war. Now, the profoundly anti-Semitic nature of the anti-Israel movement cannot be ignored because anti-Semitism throughout history has always been about societies trying to deflect blame and responsibility from their own failures. And what do we see in the UK, Canada, Australia, and the United States? 
whole movements accusing Israel of the crime of colonialism, of staining indigenous land, of living on stolen land. Now, these are crimes for which these people think their own countries have a lot of atoning to do in terms of a colonial past. But they don't think that the solution to the crime of colonialism is to dissolve Canada or Australia or the United States. It's to dissolve Israel. It's to dissolve the country founded by people returning to their ancient homeland. And what they're trying to do essentially is to expiate their own white guilt by trying to sacrifice Israel for what they, in their ideology, regard as being the crimes of their own countries. Instead of saying, we think colonialism is the ultimate sin, our countries were born out of this sin, therefore we must make the sacrifice and dissolve our countries, not something we would support, of course, these are proud liberal democracies and we're glad to have them as our allies. But instead of saying that they should make that jump and dissolve their own countries, they want to sacrifice Israel as a way of atoning for what they regard as their country's own sins. And that toxic combination of Muslim anti-Semitism and an attempt to expiate white guilt for colonialism by sacrificing Israel has brought us to this very dangerous moment in history. And I hope more people are able to call it out for what it is, because if it continues, it's a threat not only to us, it's a threat to the well-being of liberal democratic states too. Absolutely. I, I tend to call it a very dangerous combustive moment. And I have to close by asking you this question. Because you're very gracious in allowing these protest groups, you accept the genuineness of their views, that they actually believe these things, right? They believe that if they're critical race theory people, these sort of so-called, quote, progressive, because they're not really progressive left, finding common ground today with the pro-Kamas crowd and the anti-Israel crowd. And you said so many governments, they're allowing these demonstrations, which are premised on this very flawed philosophy to go ahead. And they're very ugly protests. You're from London. I'm from Toronto. We come from two of the worst cities in the world. But have you considered, I'm sure you have, the possibility that many of these governments may actually be equally anti-Semitic? Anti-Semitism may well have seeped into the upper echelons of liberal democratic governments. We're very grateful for the support that we've received from our Western allies that have by and large, played a positive role in standing by Israel's side with whatever reservations that we would have expected more clarity. And I think you see that in the United Kingdom, for example, which I can speak to having a particular interest having come from the UK. It's been very clear since the start of the war that Israel must win this war. And they've been very firm against anti-Semitism and cracking down on these hate parades, on people trying to cover their faces and defacing war memorials. And I think they understand it. Now, can I paint with a broad brushstrokes across the whole world? No, uh, it's impossible to do that. And I wouldn't want to, wouldn't want to generalize, but it's important to understand, I think, where these, where this groundswell is coming from and calling out when you see it. Totally agree. And I also agree that I think that Rishi Sunak, David Cameron have overall done an excellent job in, in supporting Israel. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. Absolutely. We've had Britain's support from day one. And that support is obviously more difficult to maintain as the war goes on. But there has never been a war in history in which Israel had foreign countries saying they want Israel to win the war, which they pick a side. And there's been no period in history 
when the world has stood by the Jewish people's right to physically defend themselves from the threat of annihilation. So I think sometimes when people talk about the UN or countries ganging up on Israel, that's somehow evidence that Israel has gone rogue, when the world ganging up on the Jews is in fact the default mode of humanity. And we would expect nothing less because that's how the world has always worked, unfortunately. Elon Levy, thank you so much for your time, your insights, and even a touch of humor in these very dark days. Have a wonderful week. Thank you, Vivian. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond podcast. We'll keep the dispatches coming as frequently as we can. If you like what you're hearing, please take a moment, rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can check out our full library of articles and podcasts at our website, stateoftelaviv.com. State of Tel Aviv is an independent media venture, and we rely on subscribers to support our work. If you are not yet a paying subscriber, please consider taking the plunge today. Each person really does make a huge difference, especially in these very challenging times in Israel. It is important that you stay informed and current and seek out a range of perspectives. This is a pivotal moment in Israeli history. It is not a time to be passive and disengaged. Thanks for sticking with me to the end. I'm Vivian Berkovich, signing off from deep inside the state of Tel Aviv.